right. It's Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. This week, uh, we are joined by Bill Addison, who is the uh, national restaurant editor over at Eater. Uh, he sits down with me and Julia Kramer, our deputy editor here at Bon Appetit, who has also helped oversee our hot 10 best new restaurant list each September. Yeah, I want to talk to Bill and Julia about basically what it's like to be a critic these days and how much that job has changed over the years and especially in the past year uh, and all the things they've got to consider when considering who to write about and what restaurants to recommend and what chefs to sort of get behind. Uh, it's a different world and yeah, I was curious to hear their thoughts. Uh, oh, also, quick shout out. You can hear from Bill and other Eater staffers on their podcast, The Eater Upsell. Check them out. Uh, all right, let's do this thing. Here is Bill and Julia and I. Uh, Bill, so my assistant, Ryan, was kind enough to put together some notes on you. Okay, fire <laughs> and she, away. And she leads off. Kind of irrelevant, but he went to Berkeley College of Music for vocal performance <laughs> and then transferred to Emerson where he got his degree in acting. She did her homework. <laughs> this is all true. Yeah, it was a different lifetime, man. Was this like pitch perfect? Um, was I pitch perfect? No. No, like was, the movie. Oh, ah, <laughs> it was, no, it was like like decades ago. So it was much more like old school, like you better walk in and you know, sing your song while somebody plays the piano and like you want it done, you're it. Like theatrical style. Like. Yeah, like theatrical old school style. Yeah. And then and at what point did you say I'm going to get out of singing and get into acting? Um, around the time I turned 30, I, this is a long story, but I had basically promised myself when I was 16 that if I didn't get anywhere as a singer or actor by the time I turned 30, I would find a new dream for myself. I was 29 and a half. I had not been a success as a singer or actor, and so I thought about what I spent a lot of time uh, loving in my life, which was food. And I had studied uh, writing throughout my 20s with uh, teacher Natalie Goldberg, who wrote a book called Writing Down the Bones, as well as many other books. And so I said, okay, I'm going to be a restaurant critic, which I wow. thought would probably be about as easy to break into <laughs> yeah. as being a pop star, but I did it somehow. Have you thought about doing like a one-man musical about your life? People love to uh, throw out suggestions for me to incorporate like the singing critic stuff. No, not yet. Maybe, maybe at some point. Do you? Did you know if you need like some support on stage that Kramer here oh plays the sitar? Ooh, not the guitar, but the sitar. No, we could I, I actually... Joni Mitchell it out with some of that, sister. Um, we could. I also play the guitar <laughs> okay. much better than See? I play the sitar. Well, Kramer, how how is it that you play the sitar? Well. <laughs> Where is this going? I'm just asking <laughs> you. Um, we need to humanize you, critics. You're not I, just like restaurant robots. You're actual people. I, similar to Bill, I was very into music at a young age. And in high school, uh, I graduated high school early, and I decided I wanted to go learn the sitar. And I uh, spent six months in Varanasi, India, studying sitar. Wow. So yeah. there you go. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't go to some. So much better than she, Boston. Yeah, she didn't go to some college <laughs> of music. She went to the source, man. <laughs> sitar school of life. Yeah, and that sitar is sitting in my parents' house untouched for the last decade. So. You literally, you it needs to be sitting in your office. <laughs> and we could have little like sitar Fridays or something. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, so, Bill, you mentioned getting into food writing sort of 
you know, post midlife, whatever we want to call that. Right. I kind of had a similar experience after I was writing a sports writer in college. And I, I was like, well, I don't want to be a sports writer, but I do want to write. And I was like, oh, yeah, food. I love food. And why not? And this was like 1994 when I moved to New York. And I feel at the time being a, a food writer, you wanted to tell a story. You wanted to make it sound delicious. You wanted to talk about how creamy the pureed potatoes were at Montroche or something. I feel like now for you and Julia, the job of being a restaurant critic has gotten more complex, perhaps more challenging in the last few years. And and that's what I was curious to talk to you guys about and, and hear your thoughts and whether or not you think that's the case. I do think that's the case, certainly. Um, I'll start with the, the simpler stuff, and then we can work our way up to the more complex, more recent issues. But I would just say that when I broke in to criticism in uh, 2002, um, that Ruth Reichel was still really the standard bearer mm-hmm. for that medium, by which I mean that I literally studied, I had a binder full of her reviews that I'd printed out, and even though she'd been gone from the New York Times for three years. What I understood from reading her work was that it was not just telling people how creamy the potatoes were at Montrachet, but that you needed to tell a story. A hundred percent. And that's what I, I always thought she was remarkably good at. She would tell a story that you would want to read from beginning to end. Yeah. And so that was my model. That's what I... That's what I took away. But I, that even that is, I mean, certainly Gail Green is a, also a beautiful storyteller, but that's different from, say, when Craig Claiborne established what became restaurant criticism in the 60s when it was like the potatoes are crisp mm-hmm. and the lamb is overcooked and it was very straight service. Exactly. It was like, this is a place on the Upper East Side. You should go here. Here's why. Yeah. So... It became more than just service journalism. It became entertainment. It became um, a, a conversation. And that was the part that excited me. I had, you know, I, I wanted it to be literary as well as gastronomical. I came to it from a similar place in that I was writing short stories in college and also really interested in food. And when I started writing as a critic for Time Out Chicago, uh, people would often say, you know, what qualifies you Oh, my God. To I, do I this? used to get that all the time when I wrote for Time Out in New York. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's like a Time Out specific <laughs> yeah, question. <exactly. laughs> um, but actually, it's not because Bill and I were on a panel together yes. um, a couple months ago where a woman in the audience asked all of us on the stage what qualified us to be restaurant critics. Um, but in any event, I always felt that the only thing that I could really say in response to that was, well, nothing. I mean, I anyone can write about what they eat. The What perhaps distinguishes me is that hopefully people are interested in reading yeah. what I have to say. And so it's so much, it's always been so much to me about the narrative as opposed to some like elusive idea of expertise. Oh, yeah, I think it's 100%, are you a good writer? Do people want to read you? And yes, you should know what you're talking about, but at the end of the day, people are either going to like to read you, and if they don't, well, you're not going to have a job for that much, that long. Exactly, and particularly, I, so I've been um, 
a critic at an alt weekly and two daily newspapers and a city magazine and then my national position at eater and particularly i feel like um as a city critic it's a a week in week out job so people are going to establish some sort of relationship reading you like if they hated me they hated me i usually knew about it via emails or comments and and yet you know they could make their own judgments based on how much they hated me you know so if if they liked what i had to say about the latest steakhouse in dallas then they probably went and tried it if they if they didn't maybe they went anyway because you know they they wanted to hopefully find out for themselves i don't know i guess that's the bottom line every review i hope makes readers want to find out for themselves yeah and, and that's what i feel like had been our job for so long is to write about restaurants and you know, in the last year or two with Me Too, with the sexual harassment issues in the restaurant industry and exposés, it sort of changed the scope, I think, of what our job is as editors and writers. And your editor, Amanda Clute, uh, who's done, I think, a really impressive job at Eater the last several years growing and evolving what that brand is. Absolutely. Uh, has been very outspoken in diversity coverage in in food media and the people you're covering, gender diversity, racial diversity, staffing, et cetera, and made it sort of a, a, a mandate of, of what Eater is about. Since I started working here, I, that's been something that is important to me. I, from my experience, my experience, at, to just to go back to Time Out, was um, I think a different starting point than people who maybe started out in food media in New York because we had the opportunity working at a weekly to cover every restaurant that we knew about that opened. So we weren't making a choice about, oh, is this restaurant worth covering or not? We literally went every single place that we knew about and we applied the same star system to all of those restaurants. So whether it was a place that only served one type of taco or a tasting menu, they were rated on the same five star system. And the question was, what is this restaurant trying to be and how well does it achieve that? Not does it meet certain criteria to which we award four stars. So I think that that really shaped my perspective on what a best new restaurant could be. I, I've always been asking like, like how, how many women are on this, sh on this list and how many people of color on this list, but we have never backwards engineered the list to meet those mm -hmm. criteria and we don't do that at this time either um but we've always sought out a, as diverse of a range of restaurants to visit as possible well it's interesting cause you say a, a type of restaurant which might be different than who are the actual people working at those restaurants at eater what is your experience as a critic so i started with Eater in 2014 and because I had a national scope and because a job like mine where I travel full time and have two tent poles, our best new restaurants in America list and also the 38 essential restaurants in America. Those are the two tent poles for everything that I do though I'm writing reviews or packages or um, roundups um, in between all that. But I would say that since I started, the question of uh, women and people of color have absolutely been in our minds. And I think the thing that's been important for Amanda and for me is to make sure that there is not a whiff of tokenism about mm -hmm. what we're doing, that 
what we're in fact doing is seeking out stellar talent sometimes that has not received the recognition that it deserves. So I'm constantly on the lookout for every kind of food and restaurant that you've described. I'm always looking for cuisines that we haven't seen much of before or uh, restaurants and cities that may not be thought of as destinations for dining. But I know that we get more serious about this every year. And I because I, I can say, frankly, that after the 2016 election, we really stepped back and were like, how well are we doing this? Not just that we're thinking about this, but how well are we accomplishing our own aims in the same way, Julia, that you talked about how we as critics judge a restaurant on its own ambitions, we needed to turn towards ourselves and say, how well are we doing with our own ambitions? I agree that there has been a shift in the sense that, and I'm grateful for this, that I feel that food media is being held more accountable than ever. And I think that that has had a positive effect in that it's pushed all of us to kind of go back and look again at what we're doing and say like, are we doing this well enough and how can we do it better? And what do we need to change in order to do better? It's interesting just because like for years, there was something soft about Food Journal. It was like fun food. It was like yummy, you should go here. It was like, let's do some cool service. Let's make the writing good. But it was entertaining, it was enjoyable. And after 2016, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Food is such an intersection of culture, of politics, of inequality, like we can't not address those issues. And so then as media people, we had to ask ourselves questions that we were not used to asking ourselves. Yes. And I think, you know, in the last decade, those questions of food as culture and as food as entree into almost any subject you can think of has been percolating among us. But I think the last couple of years, the public now understands more than ever that food can be an entree into those things. And now they're looking for it from us and expecting it from us. And I love that. I love that they're expecting that from us. Julia, has, it, has this changed your thought process and the type of pieces you want to write for Bon Appetit? It has made a lot of the stories that a lot of people have been interested in writing feel more pressing and urgent at this moment, which has sort of I think um, lit a little bit of a fire under us as editors to um, assign those pieces and to seek out new writers and to tell stories that um, haven't been told. So um, sort of as an example of that, um, Amanda Shapiro, who's the editor of Healthy-ish, wrote uh, this beautiful piece called Life on the Line in the March issue of Bon Appetit. And I think that um, this sort of Me Too movement, as well as all these questions about sort of labor practices in restaurants that have um, been surfacing over the last year with questions of, you know, including tipping and fair wages and all that, opened up a space for us in Bon Appetit, which typically is so service driven to touch on some of those issues, which maybe previously um, we would have, I don't know, shied away from or felt that our readers weren't interested in. Um, Whereas like this piece kind of got into those issues and it got an amazing response from readers who were like, yes, please, more of this. 
And it's just interesting because I think on the internet, and one thing we sort of grapple with here, Bill, at Bon Appetit, is that mm. Bon Appetit, the print magazine, is a different medium than bonappetit.com. And sure. bon Appetit, a magazine is, A, it's a lot more curated. It's done months in advance. It's we are presenting this curated material to the reader, and he or she reads it. When you're on the internet, that the internet by definition it's a conversation, and you're it's going back and forth on Twitter, on the piece itself, on comments. You can't be on the internet and not be part of the conversation. And so at Bon Appetit, we're like, wow, we're we're typically we try not to be too political or this and that. And it's like, well, you can't not be right now. Right. And, and that's interesting. And so that's that's been sort of an evolutionary thought process for us. Like, well, we're on the internet. <laughs> you can't if you're in the game, you're in the game. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't know. I, I was curious in yeah, and how you've sort of grappled with that. Yeah, I mean, this is not cool, but I will just you know, I'm not I'm not saying anything. My editors don't know. Like Twitter is not my favorite medium. So yeah, I mean, I just feel like I swallowed the wrong pill for the Matrix. Like I am not good at competing in that arena. Sure, if somebody um, calls me out on something or wants to ask me something, I will absolutely respond. Yeah. But otherwise, I am I I don't know. I you know this is this is the one place. This is the old school me. Like I love being in a digital medium. I don't I don't necessarily. I love like the curation of print, like you said, and I love the visual aspects of it. But I'm not in my job thinking to myself, I need to get back to print one of these days. Yeah. I, I love Eater. But the old school part of me, the the I'm a, 45 years old and, and I've been doing this for 16 years. And I kind of am the mentality of like, save it for the work. You know what I mean? Everything that I, that I think about that floats through the ether where I'm like, well, I have feelings about that. I have feelings about that. They end up in my articles and maybe because I have a fast churn rate because it's digital media and we publish things pretty quickly. I feel like what I care about, my my thoughts, what what's important to me in the moment shows up in some way in what I'm writing about. I have never really taken to Twitter um, and that medium. I think it's just like PTSD from the Chicago days when I was like living on food media Twitter and it was really intense and I I do share that feeling with Bill that it's a privilege to get to have you know 2,000 words to say what I want to say rather than having to pack it into a tweet you know I do think there are advantages to people being able to speak on Twitter and that you know if Twitter it does seem to be sometimes like an aggressive place like perhaps that's because people who have not in the past had the ability to speak and sort of have their voices heard now do. Yeah, agree. Like, I, I'm just saying, like, I'm not great at that kind of discourse, but there are a lot of inspiring, articulate people out there who have found their voices in that medium. Okay, I want to bring up something that I found interesting, Bill. Uh, your editor over at Eater, Amanda Clute, she announced a little while ago that when you guys were putting together a list for like your up-and-coming chefs, uh, that at least half the list would have to be women. And she set that standard, and she announced it. Uh, and as an editor, I get that. Uh, if you don't hold yourself accountable, you're just going to keep doing what you've always done, and you're not going to really sort of – you're not, you're never going to change. And the thing is you have to make yourself change. Yeah, and I think that points to two things. One, um, it's – it's risky when you sort of outwardly air your internal policies to people as 
Amanda did. And I think I respect her for doing that since I think that, you know, Eater is such a huge platform and it has the ability to sort of like set um, an example for other publications. But then you do open yourself up to like potential misunderstanding from people like, oh, well, are you just doing that to meet this sort of internal quota that you've set? And then this the second thing that that makes me think is that this is part of why I I don't think that a set quota system of saying 50% of the restaurants on our list are going to be women is my preferred method of addressing this issue. I think like but then, but, but then how do you ensure that there's some change? If you don't set some sort of bar, you know what I mean? Like what do we do? I Is just that, think you know? that, first of all, I mean, not to like take the BA food cast into intersectionality, no. but like, I mean, what what does that even mean that the list has to be 50% women? Then are you, is it all, does it also have to be 50% people of color? Does it also have to be like 50% places that like, um, you know, people where people make a living wage or 50% places that people who, um, are making minimum wage can afford to eat at? Like, there are just so many questions. I guess I'm just going to go ahead and say that I do have sort of an, an internal quota system. I, too, am not, like, looking at the list of the 38 essential restaurants that I put together and think 19 of them better be women and and even more specific, like, are there four restaurants here that are owned by Asian Americans? Are there three that are Mexican American? You know what I mean? Like you can keep breaking things down and down and down. But I'm just super mindful of wanting to celebrate what's out there that perhaps hasn't been celebrated enough. And I think the gray is a great example of that because it's in Savannah. It did get a lot of play when it first opened because Mashama Bailey, the chef there, worked for Gabrielle Hamilton of Prune. And so that's a big spotlight. It was a very, very ambitious renovation of uh, an old 1960s era Greyhound bus station that was once segregated. So the fact that um, the owner is a, a white man and the chef is a black woman it did have this rich narrative but i wanted to keep coming back and and seeing how that restaurant evolved and when though i went last year i just thought this has gotten to this really exciting place of excellence so that perhaps this restaurant has fallen off the conversation a little bit because it's not at the forefront of its newness anymore but it's better than ever it's a spectacular experience in every way, and it deserves a really high platform celebration. So when you set out to write that piece, what did you say to yourself that you needed to convey to the writer to, to, to get that point across? You know, Man, I remember I was at an off-site meeting in Detroit, and I like missed the meeting to make that deadline, basically. So um, <laughs> as I was writing that essay for that story, um, I think what I wanted to get across this is a spectacular restaurant first and and the players are meant to be celebrated but they are not meant to be celebrated by the color of their skin or their racial profile that that i am celebrating something that deserves to be celebrated and it can be noted that this is a chef of color who deserves all the the accolades that i hope she gets 
Bill, maybe this is a little less the case with you, but with us in the in a, in a magazine, we work with chefs a lot right. on, on features. We write about them in a non-restaurant critic sort of way. These are people who we get to know within the industry. Uh, I thought it was interesting, a week or so ago, Jonathan Gold reviewed Major Domo, David Chang's new restaurant in Los Angeles. And there was a lot of very candid paragraphs in that about his own relationship with Chang. And I don't, it was interesting. I was like, wow, that was, it was like a weird therapy session and sharing stuff. And Kramer, how do, how do you... How do you address that? Because like I said, you oftentimes do know these some of these people that you are then tasked to write about. I think that's an interesting question, and especially in light of this moment where you're not just writing about the food, you're writing about the whole experience of the place, and you're trying to put things into context for the reader, and then also taking into you're taking into account everything that you know about the culture of the kitchen when you're writing up a restaurant. So in that sense, um, it's, it, feels, it feels very fraught and complicated. The Jonathan Gold example is an odd one because it was almost like just a personal, a little personal dig like it was it, less. It got it got really personal. I don't, Bill. What did you think? Uh, yeah, I I guess I'm fascinated. I mean, I should just say for the record too. You know, restaurant critics all hang out together. So I've known I haven't seen Jonathan for a few years, but I've known him. But I I'm almost surprised that his editors let him write that piece or write it in the framework of a review because it almost seemed more like it could have been a personal essay. I think I mean, it could have been. He talked about how he was furious at Chang for closing Lucky Peach and. There was some weird things about a, a prank of sorts and, and then about trying to punk one of his chefs. And uh, I mean, should he have recused himself from writing that review or what do you do? Like you can't not review Major Domo. Yeah, I think ultimately that's the thing. Like if you, I, I, I guess he had to do what he had to do in that situation, right? Because first of all, Jonathan is the only critic left in Los Angeles, yeah. really. LA Magazine cut back its um, budget when it, got bought by owners in the last year and a half, new owners. Um, and LA Weekly, where Besha Rodell did such fantastic work, is a shell of itself these days, also under new ownership. So Both, both those stories are just, that, so depressing. So depressing. Media. And I mean, also, like, Los Angeles, in, the est in my estimation, is the most exciting city for dining in America right now, Chicago, <laughs> way up there. <laughs> we well. can get into this. Uh, but, but yeah, so yeah. Jonathan so, has to review right, that so restaurant. So he has to review it, has to write about it. I don't know. I'll just say, you know, from, from my p specific angle, um, you don't, I'm still kind of quote anonymous, unquote. It's not easy to find a picture of me. I know some slick PR people who have them and pass them around. I do get made here and there. People put two and two together, particularly since I've been doing this job for going on five years and I repeat myself at places and I whip out my camera because I'm my own photographer for this job. And people, I had an experience in San Francisco last week where I didn't say anything, but somebody, a manager came up and was like, good to see you again. Is the light good here for you here? Can we move oh this? And God. I was like, wow. All right. Um, so, but I, you know, the thing that's tricky and the thing that no one says is that 
um, you do get made as a critic, but also when you're good at this work and you love this work, you have to keep making a living as a journalist and a critic. And so you have to figure out how best to do this job when you are no longer anonymous. And I feel like in that sense, like Jonathan kind of bringing as many full disclosures as he could to that review is the best he could do in that situation. Yeah, it just it, unless it, yeah, I mean, unless right. he got somebody else like and who else? No one else writes reviews. So is there going to be a guest reviewer that week? It was just like, yeah. right. You know? Like in a way, it was more honest that he put that into the review than if he had left it out and given it a sort of middling review. Sure. And then, you know, talk about Twitter being alive with <laughs> conversation. Like sometimes it's just preemptive what we do, right? Like you got to put it out there so that no one thinks that like, yeah, dude, like you were in his show. He was in your movie. Like, you know, th this is so muddy. Yeah. Gold had to say something. It's just interesting that he has a complicated relationship with the chef of whom he was writing. Uh, but, and that's not easy to write honestly about someone you know you're gonna see again uh, at some point and you're putting it all out there. I guess it just upsets me because it, we're talking now about the death of restaurant criticism in America, which is rapid and real and meaning, breaks meaning my heart. What? Meaning that there are less publications because of financial challenges who are willing to pay people a salary and their expenses to eat out to do the work ethically. So there's nobody else in the city of Los Angeles to um, to write a review kind of on the same scale. I actually I want to make sure that I say, though, that Garrett Snyder of L.A. Uh, magazine, who is the food editor and also writes reviews, did write a very positive review of that restaurant, as did I, a much more positive review than Jonathan did. And, you know, like, I don't have a personal relationship with David Chang. We met once on mm -hmm. a burrito bat bracket for 538. <laughs> so, you know, but the thing is, like, I, I just don't want, I don't want that city level restaurant criticism to disappear in America. And, and it is. But don't, isn't there a vacuum that is waiting to be filled then? It's just given all the media outlets that there are now compared to what there used to be digitally. You know, Eater didn't exist however many years ago. There's, it, I feel, it just seems like there's got to be someone who's going to fill that void, but maybe in a less traditional role. Yeah, but who in Los Angeles? And especially when you think about, let's talk about Time Out for the third time on the show. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's where you worked Adam and I worked and Bill came from an alt weekly and so many so many others critics came from alt weeklies and I I agree with you Bill that without those it's like you're missing that sort of like feeder network and also I mean I think about how when Andrew and I travel the country we read all the you know newspapers and magazines and um, websites and blogs and all that from every city and those are such important resources for us in terms of you know finding these off the beaten track restaurants so it's like we all sort of lose when you don't have these city critics one last topic before we wrap it up do we have too many lists uh, I think it's all about how you present a list. I mean, I think the answer is sort of no. Like, if you do a thoughtful, well-researched, well-written, well-composed, beautifully laid-out list, then that is quick, useful, hopefully elegant information for a reader that will serve them forever. Julia? 
I just wish I were as kind and generous a person as Bill. <laughs> I think my life would be a lot happier. <laughs> Talk to Amanda Clute about that. And see what she says. I, I mean, as an editor, I've wrestled with this recently. I, I feel like I agree with you 100%. It's, and I was actually just emailing te- or texting with Brett Martin, who's a food writer for GQ, about this. It's, it's, it's less about what the list itself is and more about what you have to say about those restaurants and how you say it. Um, yeah, Brett. It's, Brett's list, quote unquote, in GQ is a perfect example. That's not a list. That's a long form essay, man. Well, in you terms know, of how they decide to the, handle it yes. in terms of the content. And at Bon Appetit, you know, our hot 10 best new restaurants list, which comes out every September, was very much conceived as a print experience. And it's 46 pages of, yes, it's a list of the 10 best new restaurants in America, but it's a visual exploration of big right. beautiful photos and there's recipes and each each restaurant is given a different story treatment and it's a much more sort of immersive sort of voyeuristic experience than it is a list of oh here are 10 places you need to go here's new york magazine's best new restaurants or here are 38 places to put on your map as you travel so while it is a technically a list i've always thought of it less as a service list and more of as a sort of readerly experience but now that list more people see that list online right than they do in the magazine so now we're like well shit how do we make this digitally immersive and what kind of platform can we afford to build for it and what templates do we have access to <laughs> right i mean for us like we're certainly always 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 thinking about how to make it visually appealing but i don't write a long form essay and i don't have the the equivalent of 46 pages you yeah. know it's it's pretty listy what i do sometimes yeah. but i mean I put everything I've got into writing some beautiful words about those restaurants and thinking super hard about what I'm including and why I'm including and who I'm including and how I'm including. So I I stand by my quote listicles unquote. I'm proud of them. I'm proud of to <laughs> be a service be. journalism. <laughs> Thank you. You'll be back next year writing, hopefully. Man, it's, uh, Julia's taking a year off on the Hot 10, as Andrew Knowlton reports it, and you're going to oversee the editing of it and construction of it. Yeah. Yeah, to be clear, I'm not taking a year off from phone <laughs> yes. I was like, whoa, still well, breaking news. No. Here 80 and, hours a week. And the reason why is because Julia is now our deputy editor. So, yes, so congratulations. She, which is incredibly well-deserved, uh, and I'm very excited about that. But it also means that she's now, if not before, definitely the hardest working person in the office. Uh, but of, so of a lot of, of a lot yeah. of hardworking people. So And she's amazing. She yeah. should be. Yeah. But, she, uh, but as a hell of a writer, you're going to get back out there next year. Um, but anyways, uh, looking forward to that, Julia. Thanks. Me too. Thanks for joining us. And Bill, uh, I've never met you before. This is so much fun. It was so much fun. Let's do this again sometime. And, and you didn't even wear a disguise. <laughs> I didn't. You know. Don't tell Adam. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.